You can, uh, again, look at Galatians 5, 22 through 23. Uh, if you need a Bible, just put your hand up. We'll make sure our Bible gets across to you. And uh, if you don't want a Bible, just keep this. It's our gift to you today. I want to uh, remind you, as we close off our series on the fruit of the Spirit, gospel impact of what Paul says in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So as we look at self-control today, I think it's incredibly important to realize, I think it's very intentional that this comes where it does in this placement of nine virtues. I think Paul has intentionally, by the Spirit of God, placed this last. You see, self-control has to do with the ability to govern our desires, the capacity to regulate our appetites. And really what this does is this pulls us all the way back to the beginning of this section where Paul began to really flesh out, pun intended, uh, the works of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, the passions of the flesh. He began in, in chapter 5 verse 16, if you just look back, he, he says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. There's this, this war going on inside of every single follower of Christ between the flesh, and that's Paul's way of simply saying that sinful part of us that still remains, and the Spirit, the indwelling presence of God that lives within us. And then he goes on to elaborate on what the works of the flesh actually look like. And he says this, he says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's not an exhaustive list. And then he says these stunning words, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And really what we see here is that this list that Paul gives us of the works of the flesh, they really display a fallen, sinful human nature out of control. And really self-control is the opposite of self-indulgence. And herein really lies the tension I think that we, we all know is real because we all experience it within we see both the practical value of self-control and so does every person in our world because we know that so much of successful living is dependent upon self-control. And yet at the same time, we feel the allure of sin and the longing to self-indulge. And what Paul addresses here is more than just our behavior. 
It involves the ability to control our thoughts, our desires, our emotions, and our impulses. And as Paul has made it clear to us, this is so essential, it is necessary because we are at war with our sinful desires, those fleshly appetites that remain. The Spirit of God is is going to war against those within us. You can kind of think of it like this. Self-control in one sense, maybe in the negative sense, is about avoiding what is destroying. That's the negative reason it's necessary for you to have self-control. You need to be avoiding what is going to be destroying you, your life, your joy. But I really want to look at it from a positive angle. You can kind of think of it like this, that self-control is necessary not only for avoiding what is destroying, but for pursuing what is renewing, what is life-giving, what is truly fulfilling. So if if you're here today and the negative effects of self-indulgence, of a lack of self-control, aren't enough for you, they're not hemming you in, they're not preventing you from walking in this self-indulgent kind of spirit, then perhaps the positive impact of self-control will be a helpful motivator for you today, will incentivize you towards what God is calling you today and what God is longing to produce within you today. Remember, this is all about gospel impact. It's about what God is doing in us in order to work through us. So I simply want to give you three thoughts today. Self-control is necessary if I want to experience more. First, success from, for the Lord. Success for the Lord. It seems, again, intentional that this final virtue is placed right here on the list. And the reason I say that is because it's a necessary virtue in order not only to avoid all of the other vices that we've just looked at, but actually it's necessary in order to cultivate all the other virtues that God has given before this one. I want you to notice as well that Paul has an ultimate goal here in mind. We looked at it in verse 17 where he says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, Paul's ultimate goal, what he's placing before all of us is the idea of the kingdom of God. He wants you to be a citizen of God's kingdom. He wants you to have assurance that you're going to inherit God's kingdom. Paul is always concerned about salvation. He's concerned that you are affirmed in your spirit, that you are truly saved, that you're safe and secure in the arms of God. And by the way, self-control, your ability to control the sinful impulses and appetites in your life are part of the evidence that affirm the saving work of God in your heart. So too is self-control in the positive sense, where you are actually restricting not only the negative things in your life, but you are controlling your appetites and directing them towards an ultimate end and an ultimate goal. Paul wants us to be concerned with our own salvation, but he also displays by his own example here That part of our success in the Christian life is being concerned about the salvation of others. It's part of what it means to be a a spiritual 
Christian, a, a Christian who loves the Lord, loves to see other people know the Lord. It's actually close to what Paul says to Timothy, his protege in the faith, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16 on the screen. He says this, he says, Keep a close watch, Timothy, on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Here, you can think of it like this. A close watch is simply another way of saying, be self-controlled. Be vigilant. Success in the Christian life, we, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, is really defined by our faithfulness to the Lord. But faithfulness to the Lord, listen, it manifests itself in fruitfulness. There's no way around this in the scriptures. Jesus himself made this abundantly clear in John 15:8, perhaps one of the greatest passages on fruitfulness in all of the Bible. Jesus says this, "By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." I want you to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to put it on the screen, but I really think it's helpful. If you have your Bible, I would love for you to turn there. I think it's one of the best passages in the Bible on self-control. And as you're turning there, I want to maybe drill this in a little bit deeper. I want you to listen to what Peter says about the necessity of self-control in the Christian life and how it really demonstrates uh, successfulness as God defines it in the Christian life. Just listen as you're flipping to 1 Corinthians 9. He says this in verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, listen to this, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature Think about the fruit of the Spirit here. Spirit dwelling in you. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge, listen, with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Listen to how he goes on here. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective, I love this, or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Do not miss that one of these qualities that is being driven into our hearts is the quality of self-control. And in 1 Corinthians 9, specifically in verses 24 through 27, 
The Apostle Paul gives us this amazing passage that has this built-in illustrations. And I want you to see the emphasis here on success. It's kind of the point here in this first point. On the goal, listen to what he says. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. One translation, the NASB says, run in such a way that you may win. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I love this because, uh, as I told you last week, uh, I'm a competitive guy, and I love to win, okay? And so the Bible here gives me um, a lot of affirmation in that desire. I hope it gives you some comfort here today, too. If you're competitive like me and you like to win, that's good, because the Bible says you should want to win. That's it? Nobody else? Somebody like, yeah, whatever. I I think that's really important, though. You can't miss this. In the Christian life, there is a goal, and we're supposed to be striving hard toward it. I remember being a kid and, and wrestling with this concept, right? Because growing up, you'd hear things like this. Maybe some of you guys still use this with your kids, and we can talk about it after. But, but people would say this, you know, it doesn't matter if you win or lose. It's how you play the game. <laughs> or to just go out there and have fun. I remember even as a kid sitting back and going like, that's not right. <laughs> that's not right. And listen, two things can be true at the same time, okay? <laughs> you can go out there and play the game well, and that's really important. You can go out there and have a lot of fun, but you can also want to win. Christian, listen, God has called you into a spiritual race with a spiritual goal, and he's given you spiritual power. Paul's not afraid to say it. You shouldn't be either. Paul says, I run in such a way that I might win the prize. I want to obtain the prize. I want to achieve spiritual success. I want to get after what God has called me to, and I want to pursue it with everything I have because I don't want to get to the end and look back and say, I didn't give everything I had for the one thing God called me to. He says, I don't want to run in a way that disqualifies me in the end. Now, what Paul is not talking about, Paul is not talking about losing your salvation. That has nothing to do with losing your salvation. It has everything to do with failing at the mission. You see, Paul's concern in this portion of 1 Corinthians 9 is winning souls. You say, what's the, what's the prize? What is he trying to obtain? It's souls. So, well, how, how can you be so sure of that, Ian? Aren't you just kind of making that up? I don't see souls in there. It's, it's easy. The context informs what Paul means when he says, run in such a way that you may win. He's been using this win language prior to this passage. Look back in verse 19. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, listen to this, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. 
He, he goes on. He goes two more times. He uses this idea that I might win, that I might win, I might win. He's like, Paul has one mission in his mind, and it is this, I want to win people to Jesus Christ. This is about winning at the mission to make disciples, which is the same mission we've been called into. We, this is why we repeat our mission statement all the time around here, okay? Because we never want to lose sight of what God has ultimately called us to do. And if you're not constantly focused on the end goal, then you're going to lose sight. You're going you're to be motivated by something other than the primary goal. And what God wants most of all is for us as the people of God, as individuals, but as a church, to be fixated on the goal, okay? Our, our, we say this, the Great Commission, we've kind of broken it down into three chunks, right? You can help me out if you know this, right? Lost people saved, saved people matured, matured people multiplied all to the glory of God. You see, we win the prize so that he gets the glory, God is calling us to prioritize and value mission success. And mission success, Paul is telling us, is impossible without self-control. It's impossible. In God's economy, giving up is gaining. And this is what Paul has gotten at. When, when he says, I, I become like a Jew that I might win the Jew... Paul is not talking about anything but, but giving things up that he can rightfully do. I want you to hear that. He is willing to give up whatever he's even allowed to do. That's self-control in the positive sense. He's, he's free to eat bacon. And most people are like, you're crazy if you don't eat bacon. And Paul's like, I'll give up bacon if it means I can win juice, okay? That takes an incredible amount of self-control. And I want you to hear this. What Paul is advocating for on the mission is contextualization. And contextualization is not capitulation. In fact, it's necessary to accomplish the Great Commission. But make no mistake about it, so much of contextualization is about giving up what you're free to do in order to win people to Jesus. And the, the, the picture he gives us here is this picture of an athlete who epitomizes this, right? We, we get this, who gives up in order to gain, gives up what they're free to do, what they are allowed to do, so to speak, but what they know will not help them win the prize in the end. You don't become a successful elite athlete by doing what everybody else does. You become a successful elite athlete by giving up what everybody else won't. And so I just want you to hear this, that self-control is fueled in many ways, at least in large part, by our desire for success. So what I'm advocating for today, what the Bible is advocating for, you should want to be successful in accordance with God's word, and successful is about being faithful to the mission. If I, if I long to cross the finish line and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, I must see self-control as absolutely necessary in my life. And Paul links the success of our life and our mission to one thing. Say, so what exactly does he do this with? Here it is, personal holiness. Self-control, secondly, is necessary if I want to experience more sanctification from the Lord. 
Sanctification is just that, that theological word that means personal holiness. To be set apart from sin, to be consecrated unto the Lord. And it's this process of gradual growth in the Lord. It's, it's in many ways what this series is all about. That God is trying to produce within us the fruit of the Spirit. More Christ-likeness, more holiness, more godliness. But what this is calling us to is a cultivation of those things which requires discipline, self-control. I mentioned that self-control in many ways is the ability to control our wants, our urges, our emotions, and our passions. Paul says that he doesn't run aimlessly. He doesn't box as one beating the air. But again, notice this language in verse 27. I discipline my body and keep it under control. Again, I memorized this passage years ago in the NASB. Here's how it says it. it. I like it so much better. I beat my body and make it my slave. I don't let my body control me. I control my body. I don't let my appetites and my urges control me. I control my appetites and my urges. In athletic terms, this is talking about training. And training oftentimes in an athletic sense, we know this is costly, it's painful, it's hard work, it's not easy. And I think too often in the Christian life, we expect things to come too easy. We expect things to come, like holiness to come without a cost. And I think that's just an unreasonable and unbiblical expectation. And the Bible calls us, listen, to pursue holiness, to be disciplined and exercise self-control in every area of our life. I was just uh, recently uh, watching some of the world, the track and field world championships. Anybody know that was going on? It's like three people in here probably. Uh, I, I love it. I used to run track. And so every year I, I t- kind of keep up with some of the races. And uh, it, was, it was in Budapest this year. And uh, I, I really like watching, I like some of the sprints, but I used to be like a middle distance runner. So I, I love watching some of those middle distance races, the 1500 meter. And there's a, there, there's a guy um, who's kind of been taking the middle distance world by storm. He's, he's a Norwegian guy named Jakob Ingerbritsen. This guy's young. He's like 21. I think he's 21, maybe 22. He's super young and he is just, he's just destroying people. He's like getting close to breaking world, like he's broken a number of world records, but he's, he's almost breaking world records that have been around for 30 years, if that gives you kind of some sense of how amazing this guy is. He, he almost went undefeated this entire year. And so I'm watching the 1500 meter and expecting this guy, everybody is saying like, this guy's a shoe in to win, it's gonna be a breeze, he's run the fastest times all year and it's not even been close. And this guy gets beat, he comes second place. Totally unexpected. And, and the guy who beat him is, is uh, this British guy. And this British guy, I loved it. I was watching, he, I was watching the interviews afterwards because I was fascinated. How are they going to respond? And, and you know, Jakob Ingerbritsen, he's got a little bit of pride. And he's like, yeah, I just wasn't feeling too well. Like, okay, okay. Because he goes out the next day and he wins a 5,000 meter. Oh, okay. So, so but this, this was, okay, the, here's my point, okay. 
I'm, I'm losing you here, aren't I? So the, the, guy who, the guy who won, who just kind of barely eked out the win is this British guy named Josh Kerr. And I watched the interview afterwards and, he, and they're like, how did you pull this off? Like, what, tell us about you know, your, your plan and your strategy. What did you do to dethrone this, this guy who was supposed to clearly win this race? And he starts talking about all the keys to his success. And he talked about the changes that he'd made in his training over the course of that year. And he said he left nothing to chance. He said he, he, had, a, he had a mental coach, you know, a sports psychologist. Uh, he, he obviously had a, a, a track coach who was helping him with all this training and his regiments, keeping him on, on track with all those things. He had a nutritionist. He said he even hired this year for the first a personal chef to prepare every meal so that not one thing was left to chance. And he said this, that, that the win was a testament to his preparation. And he said this, there were no corners cut. And I thought, that's exactly what God wants Christians to do when they approach holiness in their life. No corners cut. No area in your life left unevaluated. No stone unturned. You care so deeply about the success of the mission, the gospel going forth, people being saved, and you realize how much your own personal holiness depends upon your ability to be fruitful for the Lord, that you are willing to pursue sanctification with such vigor, with such intentionality, and Paul actually wants us to look at, at the, the picture of self-control in an athlete and to think to ourselves, listen, they do it for a perishable wreath. Look at what they're willing to go through for the applause of man. A medal around their neck. What we're after is something that is not temporary and fleeting. Not something that is earthly here today and gone tomorrow. What we're after is a prize that is eternal. It is unfading. Every single human soul will live forever. Paul, as he's shaping Timothy as a young pastor, says these words in 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, it's of some value, okay? Go ahead, train your body, get into good shape. But listen, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life, but also for the life to come. What we're doing is of eternal significance. And we can't miss that. It's so necessary to have self-control in our lives because we are fighting an incredible battle. And the book of Proverbs gives us this imagery of what it's like to lack self-control in your life. And it uses this imagery of a city, Proverbs 25 Verse 28 says this, it says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Now, in the ancient world, if, if you were a part of a city, you needed walls to protect yourself from 
invaders. It was essential to your survival. Without walls, you have no defense. Without walls, you become easy prey for the enemy. And and the word of God is saying, listen, self-control is like a wall that protects you. Charles Bridges, an older Bible commentator, he said this. He said, he yields himself to the first assault of his ungoverned passions, offering no resistance, having no discipline over himself. Temptation becomes the occasion of sin and hurries him on to fearful lengths that he had not contemplated. Anger tends toward murder. Watch, unwatchfulness over lust plunges into adultery. And the reason I'm giving you this biblical image is because I want you to remember that when God is calling you to self-control, he's doing so for your own good. He wants to protect you. He wants to help you. And he wants you to be effective. He wants you to be sanctified so that you can be fruitful and effective. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.20. He's speaking uh, metaphorically of, of the people of God as a great house. He says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. This is sanctification language, church useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Your spiritual effectiveness is directly tied to your spiritual holiness. Okay? And, and, I, and again, I, I, just, I think sometimes we... We fail to, like, why aren't I more effective for the Lord? Why isn't God using me? Why don't I see God giving me more opportunities? Maybe it starts right here for some of you because you're not actually pursuing holiness in the Lord. Now, self-control at its core is all about power. In fact, the Greek word that Paul uses in Galatians 5.22, it's actually a, a combination of two Greek words kind of mashed together, and, and it literally means inner power. I think that power is often best revealed in restraint. Think of, of Jesus Christ king of glory, who's brought out into the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4 to be tempted by Satan. Three times, Satan tempts him to do something. Every time, Jesus shows his power by exercising self-control, not giving in to the temptations of Satan, not willing to do things Satan's way, committing instead to do things God's way. Think of Joseph who exercises immense power over his own passions and lusts when he is tempted and enticed by Potiphar's wife uh, towards sexual immorality. And what does he do? He flees. He runs away from the situation. That, That is not a display of weakness. That's a display of power. That's why Paul seizes on that imagery in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he's actually creating this kind of mental link to Joseph, I believe, when he says, when you face sexual temptation, what are you supposed to do? Flee. It's not weakness, it's power. Giving in 
is weakness. Indulging in sin is weakness. The inability to control your desires, your passions, your appetites, your tongue, your temper. That is not a display of power, but of weakness. The self-controlled person isn't a glutton. They manage their appetite. They don't react with rage and fly off the handle every time things don't go their way, but they have a mastery over their emotions. They don't indulge every desire, but they restrain their impulses. And you know, the reason we need self-control is because of sin. Paul's drawn our attention to this already in Galatians 5, but ever since the fall, all the way back in the garden, our impulses and desires have been shaped and driven by sin. So much so that the Bible actually says that apart from Christ, we are all slaves to sin. The natural man lives for the passions of the flesh. Apart from the work of God, John says that we're filled with the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. So what do we do? How do we work towards greater self-control in our lives? How, how do we achieve or increase in sanctification and personal holiness? Well, let's reach back to this picture of the athlete that Paul has given us. They have a goal. They want to obtain the prize. They want to win the race, so to speak, but they have a plan to accomplish it. They discipline their body. They bring it under control. I like what uh, author and um, biblical counseling guru, Ed Welch, says. He says this. He says, the, desires for, the desire excuse me, for self-control must be accompanied by a plan. If self-control demands thoughtfulness, and if it ultimately declares war on both our own flesh and Satan's temptations, then there must be a strategy. If our battle was against an insignificant foe, then planning would be unnecessary. But listen, church, you have to believe this. You are up against three significant foes, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and you can't underestimate any of them. And they work together to assault you, to pull you away from what God wants for you. So what kind of a strategy can we employ? I, I want to just, as we're talking about this, I want to give you a five-part strategy, just really quickly. Five words, five-part strategy. And, and this should be somewhat obvious, but I, I trust even that this would refresh you and help you. Because if you're like me, there are certainly areas of my life where I do not exercise self-control the way I ought to. So here's what, what I want you to first do. Isolate. Not personally isolate. I mean isolate areas where you are lacking self-control. This is a call really to examine your life, to be absolutely honest. Where is it that you lack personal self-control? Is it with your tongue? Is it with your temper? Is it in regard to food? Is it in regard to lust? Is it in regard to entertainment? Doom scrolling. <laughs> 
Isolate that, be clear, be specific. And then secondly, implore. And here, by implore, here's what I mean. I mean, go to God first and repent of your sin, repent of your lack of self-control in these specific areas, and request the help of God. Beseech him, call out to him. Ask him to supply what you are lacking in and of yourself. Third, identify Identify when you tend, this is so important for your strategy, identify when you tend to struggle most with self-indulgence in those areas of weakness. Look at the, the circumstances of your life that seem to lend themselves towards failure in these particular areas, right? Like, you know, if you struggle with food, don't go grocery shopping when you're hungry, Right? If you got a temper and it's fueled by a lack of, like everybody knows what it's like to get hangry, okay? We, we know this, so like back off, isolate those moments, identify when you tend to struggle most of them, and realize that those are trigger points for you. Avoid what leads to temptation. Flee those, those situations or circumstances. Four, interchange. I needed I words, so you have to kind of humor me here. But the, the idea here is this is replacement. This is the put off, put on principle. You can't just put off things. You need to put on the kind of corresponding virtue, right? So if you're struggling with lust, Paul says that you need to learn to be thankful. If you are selfish and you want to be served, you need to learn to serve others. If you have a, a temptation towards lying, then you need to be a person who tells the truth. If you have a, if you have a struggle with uh, stealing, then you need to work hard and give to people, not take. There's a corresponding virtue. Finally, and perhaps maybe for some of us, this might be one of the most important things we can do, invite. Invite people into the plan. Ed Welch says this in the same article. He said, it is one thing to make a resolution. It is something completely different to repent. Diligently seek counsel and in concert with others, develop a plan that is concrete and Christ-centered. I think that's so, so critical. Bring your sin to the light. Invite other people into the struggle with you to help you uh, chart a path forward to keep focused on the gospel and to be accountable. I love the emphasis there on a concrete Christ-centered plan because the honest truth is if Christ is not involved, you will find no lasting fruitfulness. Which is why finally self-control is necessary if I want to experience more satisfaction in the Lord. Ed Welch goes on to say that the heart of any plan must be Jesus himself. There is no greater strategy than looking to Christ. Rather than give us a 12 steps on which to rely, he gives us a person to know and enjoy. As Jesus is known, enjoyed, and exalted among us, you will notice that self-control becomes more obvious. In Matthew chapter five, verse six, Jesus puts it like this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Jesus is saying that ultimately, there's only one thing that can satisfy. It is him and likeness to him. Satisfaction in the Lord is both the motivation and the means for our self-control. 
It is the key to our sanctification and therefore our spiritual success. So if we back this up, here's what you're going to find, okay? We're kind of, if you can go in reverse order, until you're satisfied most in the Lord, you will never pursue sanctification in the Lord and you will never then be successful for the Lord. This is a call to love Jesus more than anything, to treasure him above all else. And again, I, I love the quote by C.S. Lewis. He, 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 you know, we're so busy. We're like, we're like kids who are playing in a mud puddle when we could be enjoying a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily satisfied. He's given. That's what sin is. You realize that? Sin is the, is the seeking of satisfaction, but it's the giving in to a lesser satisfaction, a temporary satisfaction that actually doesn't satisfy in the end. It hollows you out more. And what it does is it creates this chasm within your soul that longs for more and more sin in order to be more and more satisfied. And it just perpetuates the problem. This is such an important truth because the honest, honest truth, listen, you can be satisfied with lesser power sources to help you exercise self-control, okay? Let me say that again. This is important. You can be satisfied with lesser power sources in order to become self-controlled. You say, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. There are many sources of power that you can tap into to grow and change. And the reason for that is we're not one-dimensional individuals. We're, we're multi-dimensional. We're psychological, spiritual, social beings. And so there's a lot of different things you can tap into to produce some kind of change in your life. But any other way but Jesus will not ultimately be sufficient and will not lead to eternal satisfaction for your soul. You can, let me, I want again, I want to make this clear. You can actually be self-controlled apart from Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Lots of people do it all the time. There are all sorts of ways people can be helped with their problems. Any religion, philosophy, theory, ideology, any group of people can produce men and women who can come up to you and say that their lives have been changed. Uh, you know, I have peace in my life because of what I've been doing. I have overcome bad or destructive habits. How many times do we hear people say, well, if it works for them, the reason we say that is because, is because there are lots of different things that work for people. Religions and worldviews that are utterly at odds with one another, completely contradict each other, yet they can all produce results. Why? Because there are sources of power that can be tapped into. But just because it works doesn't mean it's true. Just because it works doesn't mean it's best. Christianity isn't true because it works, it works because it's true. But many things that are not true still work. False religions, worldly philosophies and ideologies. I mean, the self-help section in brick-and-mortar bookstores and on and online sales is by far the most profitable. The power of positive thinking, bootstrap it through, atomic habits. I mean, you, you can have a stack of self-help books that actually will help you make changes in your life 
So you can change and you can be self-controlled apart from Jesus. You can actually overcome porn addiction. You can overcome alcohol or drug addiction. Uh, You can get weight loss. You can fix your marriage. Uh, You don't have to find Jesus to fix all of that. Lots of sources of power work. However, however, listen, if you turn to anything but Jesus, in the end, you'll be worse off than before and you'll still be lacking the satisfaction that your soul so desperately desires. In contrast to those whose portion is in this life, Psalm 17, 15 says this, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. You see, what the Bible tells us is that the only way to change is to give yourself over to something. Something must possess you in order to change you, and unless it's Jesus, it will never be enough. You can be possessed by family pressure to do a lot of things. You can be possessed by guilt in your own conscience to change your life. You can be possessed by career aspirations, by wealth and possessions. You can be possessed by health or physical appearance. You can be possessed by a power source that can lead to self-control, but in the end will lead only to death. Only those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. And not just practical righteousness, but the person of righteousness. Only Jesus can provide the power to overcome any stronghold in your life. Not temporarily, permanently. Listen, you will be possessed by something. You will. Some motivation, some aspiration, some driving factor in your life will possess you. Jesus says, let it be me, and find not only the source of lasting self-control, but the source of lasting satisfaction for your soul. The key to self-control, ironically, is surrendering control. In the end, the root reason we fail to exercise self-control in areas of our lives is because we are not surrendering daily to him, and we are not daily satisfied in him. We must believe what Jesus says in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Self-control, it's ultimately about the ability to be controlled not by the sinful self, but by the Holy Spirit. It is necessary if we want to experience more success for the Lord, sanctification from the Lord, and satisfaction in the Lord. Christian, here is our great hope. Self-control is possible because the Holy Spirit is powerful. Amen? You have to believe that. So be encouraged and take heart. For as Paul says to Timothy, God has given us a spirit not of fear, but of power, of love and of self-control. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would produce in us by your power, by your grace, for your glory, what we cannot produce on our own. We pray most of all, O Lord, that we would be motivated 
by a successful mission, pursuing the Great Commission, that we would see the necessity of our own sanctification, Lord. We want to be vessels that are fit for honorable use in your house, Lord, used by you. But Lord, we realize that none of that will be possible until we are satisfied completely in you. So God, even now we, we confess that we have not been satisfied in you. In, in many ways, Lord, we have found a temporary, fleeting, earthly satisfaction to be more appealing than you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us. And instead, oh Lord, today we pray by your grace that you would refresh us and remind us that you are more satisfying. You are sweeter. You are better. You are greater. That you, Lord, are all we need. And so, God, we ask that as we look towards everything you've called us to, that it would begin right here, Lord. Make us a people who are more satisfied with you. And we pray now, O oh Lord, that the satisfaction of our souls would erupt in the praise of your name. So receive right now from our hearts and from our lips what you so rightly deserve glory and honor and praise. We offer it to you now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.